Well, what a joy it was to be together uh, last week for our 10-year celebration. If you were there, what a blast. Um, God has been so faithful. It's a joy to celebrate with everyone. Uh, we're starting a new summer series this Sunday, The Good, The Bad, and The Ugly. Uh, let's clap it up for Abby as well, just for making amazing graphics every week and all the time. Uh, just awesome stuff. Uh, before we get into it, uh, a quick announcement. Uh, for the summer, as the kind of... Uh, uh, kids come home from school, we're going to follow a similar pattern, uh, and uh, when uh, kind of the young kids come home from school, all the college kids uh, go away and go home. So uh, a, a large chunk of college students populate our second service. So what we're going to do, we're going to go to one service for the summer, and that's going to help us welcome new folks, help us worship together as one body, uh, and it's also going to give our staff, volunteers, just a chance to rest a little bit and prepare for the fall. Uh, the first Sunday of September, we'll go back to two services. So from the 26th of June uh, to the 28th of August, we will be two services, or one service at 10 a.m., all right? One service, 10 a.m. So next week will be our last uh, Sunday of two services. Well, I'm going to uh, ruin a movie for you this morning. Uh, it, it was the second most popular movie in 1999, so you're probably okay. If you haven't seen it by now, I mean, I'm sorry. <laughs> Uh, the first popular was uh, Star Wars uh, Episode One, so uh, which wasn't so great. But uh, the, the second most popular was Sixth Sense. Uh, and, and I don't know if you saw Sixth Sense, but, but here's what happens. Uh, Bruce Willis is this uh, child psychologist, and uh, he, he comes home in the beginning of the movie from an award uh, ceremony. He's gotten this award for being amazing, right? Uh, but, but this kid that he counseled as, as a kid has grown up and uh, comes, comes into his house, is broken into his house and says, you failed me, right? You failed me. You didn't do all that was needed. I'm not healthy. And, and he shoots Bruce Willis. And then he shoots himself, takes his own life. And that's the beginning of a movie. Uh, a couple months later, Bruce Willis meets this uh, little kid, and, and this little kid uh, kind of has all these uh, dreams, and he can kind of see visions and stuff, and maybe you've seen it. And then uh, he's kind of counseling uh, this kid through all these hallucinations, and, and uh, the kid then, here's a famous line, he goes, I see dead people. I don't know if you remember that. <laughs> I see dead people. This is a long time ago. We're pretty old. And so, uh, and, and that's kind of this Lynchman's this movie. And so uh, it, Bruce Willis keeps going on and on trying to help this kid out. And then the kid kind of gives him some advice. Says, man, you, you're kind of distant from your wife, so you need to start talking with her when she's asleep. And, and then he is. He's talking with her. And the, the kid has also said, uh, you know, I see dead people. But, but dead people, they only see what they want to see, right? They, they don't kind of know everything that's going on. They only see what they want to see. And then, and then there's this moment where Bruce Willis is talking to his wife. And, and in a sense, she reconciles with him and him with her. And, and then he realizes... Oh, wait, I'm dead. And then he looks back and, and he realizes when that guy broke in in the beginning of the movie uh, and shot Bruce Willis that, that he actually died in that moment. And so then you kind of go and, and you've had all this weird stuff through the movie, but then when you realize at the end of the film, he's actually dead the whole time as a ghost interacting with this kid and, and his family members and all this kind of stuff, it all makes sense. It's like the linchpin to the story. I see dead people, and Bruce Willis himself has been dead the whole time. And you, I remember going back and watching it over and thinking, oh, 
Oh, oh, now I get it. Oh, yeah, all that stuff that didn't make sense now makes sense. And, and what we see in the scriptures, uh, and Jesus kind of has this, oh, linchpin moment here in Luke 24. Here's what we see. Jesus is the center of the story from beginning to end. That everything that happens before Christ is pointing to Jesus, what he does in his life, his death, and his resurrection. And everything that happens after Jesus is pointing back to Jesus as we wait for his return. He's the center of the story, the linchpin. And when we read the scriptures with him as the middle and we realize, oh my gosh, it's all about him. What we do is we have these aha moments over and over again. And it all makes sense. So what we're going to do this morning is just look at this, this moment where Jesus shows up on the road to Emmaus. He talks to two disciples, and he kind of gives them the linchpin for understanding all of the scriptures. And then we'll begin our series by going back to the beginning of the Bible in Genesis chapter 1, 2, and 3, and look at Adam and how he points us forward to Christ in his life, death, and resurrection and reminds us of his return. All right, uh, let's get into it. We are in Luke chapter 24, verses 13 and following. That very day, two of them were going to a village named Emmaus, about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. Now, uh, here's the scene. Uh, Jesus' disciples have all watched Jesus crucified on a Friday. Uh, he's been dead for three days, and then these uh, women run to the tomb, and, and they see a couple of angels there, and they see uh, the stone has been rolled away, and they see these garments there that Jesus wore. They uh, put him in them, and, and, and they're like, oh, he's, he must be risen. The angels have told us he's alive, and they run back. They tell Peter and the others, and, and the, the others, they say, uh, just before this passage, the words of these women seem to them like an idle tale, and they didn't believe him. Jesus' followers are saying, no, we don't think so. And now these two, Cleopas and this one other, probably Peter, we don't really know, are, are walking on this road uh, to Emmaus, outside of Jerusalem, a few miles. And, and they're walking, and then we see in verse 15, while they were talking and discussing together, Jesus himself drew near and went with them. Jesus himself shows up, and he's walking with them, and and their eyes are kept from recognizing him. They don't know who he is by his design. And, and he said to them, what's this conversation that you're holding with each other as you walk? I love it. They're, they stand still. They're like, uh, looking sad. And one of them, named Cleopas, answered him, are you the only visitor to Jerusalem who doesn't know the things that have happened here in these past days? Don't you know Jerusalem was in an uproar? They, they crucified this guy, Jesus, and, and they go on to explain, we thought he was going to be the one who was going to rescue us. We, we thought he was going to one uh, who was going to bring us salvation and, and, and get us out from the rule of Rome. We, man, we thought this was the one we were waiting for. We thought this is the one that all the scriptures were, were promising about, the Savior, the Christ, the anointed one to come. But it must not be him. He's dead. And they keep walking and keep talking. And then they go on in verse 24. Some of those who were there with us, they went to the tomb, these women and others, and found it just as the women had said. But, but Jesus, they didn't see. And Jesus said to them, O foolish ones and slow of heart, to believe all that the prophets have spoken, 
Was it not necessary that the Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And get this, here's what Jesus does next. And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them the scriptures and all the things concerning himself. Uh, so here's the scope of what he says this, this whole book is about. He uses this kind of a, a shorthand to say uh, the Moses and the prophets. Later when Jesus is explaining this to his disciples in Jerusalem, he'll add the Psalms or the, uh, the poems, right, or the writings. And, and so uh, we got Moses, the prophets, the Psalms. The whole Old Testament, he says, it's all the scope of it. Every bit, every letter, every word written about who? About himself, Jesus. He says, the linchpin to understanding this whole story is that it all points to me, Jesus. That's the scope of the scriptures. It's so funny because uh, the women, when they go to the tomb, uh, the angels remind them in verse 6. Uh, they say, he's not here, this Jesus whom, whom you're looking for. He's risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men to be crucified on the third day rise, and they remembered his word. So, so Jesus, he comes saying all that the scriptures have always said. He says, there's going to come one who's going to die in your place. He's going to take the penalty for your sins so you don't have to pay the penalty for yourself. But it's not going to end there. He's going to raise to newness of life, and, and then he's going to come back and get you again and make all things new. The scope of the scriptures, the whole thing, tell this story. All Moses, all the prophets, all the scriptures, every bit, every piece. And they tell it with specificity. You know, when, when Jesus, he, he, he's with these two, I, I love where this goes. They, they get to Emmaus, and, and this is about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And they urge him to say, oh, <laughs> I like this because... Uh, Jesus kind of throws a little fake to him, verse 28. I, I love the details. It's like, oh, wait, this probably actually happened. Uh, chapter 24, verse 28, they draw near to the village to which they're going, and Jesus acts as though he's going further. <laughs> he's like, I'm going to keep going. And they urge him, no, 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 stay with us. It's towards evening, and the day is now far spent. It's getting really late. So he went to stay with them. When he was at the table with them, he took bread and blessed and broke it and gave it to them. And their eyes were opened, and they recognized him. And he vanished from their sight. And they said to each other, didn't our hearts burn within us when he talked to us on the road, when he opened to us the scriptures? Didn't we burn? Didn't we realize, man, this is the one we were waiting for? When he talked to us from the beginning to the end of the scriptures, they sit and they have communion with him, and their eyes are open. They realize, oh, my gosh. This is our Savior. This is the one who's been written of who has come. And they're talking about these things in, in verse 36 of chapter 24. And, and they're all together now, all the disciples. And then Jesus comes back again. And he's kind of in this spirit form, but he's got a body. And they're like, oh, my goodness. And then he says, just give me something to eat. Like, it's actually me. And they're like, oh, my, oh, my. And, and then he's like, let me talk to you again about the book I've left you. Let me talk to you again about the scriptures I've given you. And he says it again in verse 45 and following. He opened their minds to understand the scriptures, and he said to them, Thus it's written, the Christ, the chosen one, the unwanted one, should suffer, and on the third day raised from the dead, that repentance and forgiveness of sin should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, 
beginning with Jerusalem. And you're witnesses of these things. And behold, I'm sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you're clothed with power from on high. It says the whole scriptures tell the story. And what do they tell? A story about me, Jesus. What? That the Christ would come. He'd live. He'd suffer. He'd die. The third day he'd raise. And then we would have this amazing message of repentance and forgiveness of sins. The simple, uh, what we call the gospel, that, that you would have kind of uh, the, the core of the story, which is, man, we're sinful people. We want to turn from our sin. We want to do what's right, uh, but we need the grace of God. We need to be uh, poured over by his grace. We need to see he died for us, he rose for us, and he's now with us walking in newness of life by the power of the Spirit. So the whole scope, with great specificity, talk about Jesus and all he's done for us. It's that aha, it's that linchpin. It's that, oh, it all makes sense kind of piece to the story. I remember the first time somebody told me this about the FedEx logo. Do you see the hidden piece there? I never saw it. I felt so stupid. <laughs> They're like, there's an arrow right there in the E and the X. And it's like, oh, FedEx. They're the, one of the first to carry packages by air overnight, right? They're one of the first to do it. They're like, we can get you from here to there. We can get your stuff from here to there. And they, they, they embed this little arrow in there. And I remember thinking, oh, yeah, I knew that was there. And then I remember thinking, that's amazing. <laughs> Somebody knew what they were doing, right? Uh, they they kind of knit it in there from the beginning. At first, it's kind of not fully seen, but then when you see it, you're like, that's all you can kind of see in the logo is that, uh, is that arrow. Uh, I, Jesus says, uh, I'm going to explain to you the scriptures and they, how they all concern me. And how they're all talking about me. And I bet the, I bet the disciples are like, oh, we knew, we knew that. And they're like, wow, that's awesome. And I kind of wish we were there for that conversation of, well, how, right? That's the, that's the next question we always ask. Well, how does that work? Like, I, I read the Old Testament. I'm like, dang, it doesn't look like it's talking about Jesus. How is, how is Jesus going from Moses, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy? How is he going from Moses to then, then the prophets and all these prophets? Like, uh, man, Malachi, that's talking about Jesus. And then and, and all the, the Psalms and everything. How, how does he do that? How do we read the scriptures with a Christ-centered lens. Uh, here's a couple ways, and I would uh, just greatly commend to you the guide that we put together for this summer. It's a very simple guide. Uh, one, it kind of walks through just how to read the Bible on your own and then kind of how to have discussions in your groups together. But, but in this one, we have put just, and it's super short, we put uh, four different ways to read the Old Testament that we would see that arrow. Wow! And the scriptures would come to life. Uh, the first is uh, the redemptive story. It, you know, the, the, the scriptures are one story from beginning to end. And, and the, the redemptive story could be summarized like this. There's a creation or God has made all things, including us, for a relationship with himself. But then there's this, this fall where we, uh, Adam and Eve, and all people say, forget you, God. I'll live life the way I want to live it. I don't care about you. And we've all done that in our lives. And then there's this uh, redemption, what he does for us in Jesus. And then there's this restoration when he comes back and, and makes all things new in the end. That's the, the, the redemptive history, right? From creation to fall to redemption to culmination or restoration. 
So when we read the Old Testament, uh, what we can see is this event moves that forward towards Christ. Or when we read the New Testament, we say it reminds us of Christ or points us forward to when Christ will return, right? So we read it as a, a one whole story, a historic event, a redemptive story. And there's a whole bunch of those, and we'll hit on them as we go through the scriptures this summer. The second is this, this idea of uh, foreshadow and fulfillment, all right, uh, that events or people sometimes or, or systems in the Old Testament will point us forward to Christ. Uh, here we, you know, we often think uh, most of uh, the Passover lamb. You know, you got, you got this whole sacrificial system uh, also, and that's kind of points us forward. Hebrews talks about all that. But the Passover land we got in, in Exodus, uh, Moses is taking the people out of Egypt. And this last kind of uh, plague on the people of Egypt is that uh, the firstborn son is going to be killed. And then uh, any of uh, God's people, if, if they have faith in him, what they do is they slaughter this lamb. They paint their doorposts and their thresholds with uh, the, the blood of the lamb. And then what we see when Jesus shows up in John chapter 3 and other places, he says, man, I'm the Passover lamb. Remember that event back there where, where a lamb was slaughtered or killed in, in place of your firstborn son? Well, well, I'm that lamb. I'm the one who's going to be slaughtered and killed for your sins. You're the guilty ones, he says, but, but I'm the lamb to take your place. And so the, the story then makes sense a bit more. It comes to life. We say, ah, man, that's amazing. Foreshadowing fulfillment. Uh, the next one, we've got these all in the guide. Uh, positive and negative. This is kind of like typology is the, the word for it. Uh, that's where back here in the Old Testament we'll have a person, right? And, and a positive attribute or a negative attribute will kind of point us to Christ. And the positive aspect of the person will say, wow, what an amazing king David is. But, but then over here we'll say, wow, what an even more amazing king our Jesus is. Uh, in the negative uh, of a type, and then the anti-type, which is kind of confusing, but it's kind of the fulfillment type, not the opposite type. So in the type of David, we'll, we'll see, oh, man, what a sinful guy David is. I can't believe he would murder his friend to take his wife as his own. Oh, my gosh. And here we'll say, oh, man, that sin, that own same kinds of sin in my life, point me forward to say, I need a Savior. I really need a Savior. So we have type, anti-type, uh, positive and negatives of a person that's then fulfilled or exceeded in Christ. All right, That's kind of another aha moment from the Old Testament into the new in Christ. And then the last is the one we often think of as direct prophecy. Uh, so here we've got like Isaiah 53, that the Savior to come is going to be one who suffers and dies in our place. Or like in uh, Micah 5.2, we see uh, the Savior to come. It's going to be born in Bethlehem, this obscure town in the line of David. Wow. And these things are fulfilled. Or in Psalm 22, uh, none of his bones when he's crucified will be broken. We see of the Savior to come. We say, wow, even what we see on the cross, they don't break his bones, which was abnormal. All right, so we've got uh, these four different ways that kind of shine a light right on Jesus. And bring together the whole story of the scriptures that we would say, wow, what an amazing Savior we have. It's very important that God, when he says, I want you to know me, I want you to know all about me. So he gives us his scriptures. What he does is he makes Christ the very centerpiece of his revelation, the very uh, pinnacle of everything he wants us to know about who he is and he, what he wants us to be like. It's as if God is saying, here's what I want from you. I, I want you to know Jesus. I want you to live for Jesus. 
I want you to live like Jesus, and I want you to share about Jesus. He's like, I want it all to be about Jesus. But we Christians mess that up, don't we? <laughs> we religious people mess that up, don't we? We make it about so many other things. I, I, I love this passage in John chapter 5. This is long before Jesus is crucified and risen from the grave. At Jesus in John chapter 5. When people are messing all this up and taking it and making Christianity a religion about other things, in this case, morality. That Jesus is, is, is there talking with this group of Pharisees and others. This is like the religious of the religious of the day. And he's, he's saying, I want you to know that, that I come by the testimony of many others. He's, Jesus is saying, like, I'm not just coming on my own. And he says, but I've got the testimony of John the Baptist, he says first. And that's the guy who kind of just talked about Jesus and said, here comes the Savior, right? And then he says, I've got also the testimony of the Father, and, and primarily the Father in two places, and in the works that the Father gives me to do. That, that's gonna, they're going to give testimony of me, Jesus, that, that I can be trusted. I'm the Savior to come. I'm the one that you're waiting for. And then he says the second one, and in the Scriptures. So let me read a little bit of what goes on here. In verse 37 of chapter 5 in John, uh, Jesus says, The Father sent me, is born witness about me. His voice you've never heard it. His form you've never seen. And you don't have his word abiding in you. Now, this is everybody who, everybody in this area thought, man, if anybody knows God, it's these Pharisees. They're always reading the scriptures. <laughs> and, and Jesus says to them, you don't have his word, his scriptures abiding in you, for you do not believe the one whom he sent. He's talking about himself there. And Jesus says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And it's they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me, Jesus, that you might have eternal life. This is crazy because they are reading the scriptures like crazy. And Jesus says, you've got everything you need, but you're making it about this morality thing that you get to God by being good. And Jesus is like, it has nothing to do with that. You've got to receive me, Jesus, what I've done for you in my life, my death, and my resurrection. He says, it's all about me. Don't make it about your morality. Don't make it about politics. I mean, this is crazy. Like, uh, now when, when you say to someone in this area, what is being a Christian? What they'll think of is the right-wing voting block, and, and, and voting for Trump is an evangelical, right? That's, that's what comes to mind right away. And Jesus is like, what's that have to do with me? I, I was talking to a friend the other day, and, and they started arguing for gun laws. And I'm like, hey, I can have an argument about gun laws. Like, we're talking about gun laws and talking about what's going to make us safe. And all. But then they started saying, this is a Christian right, my freedoms. And I'm like, what are, we, what are you talking about? Like, we, we, we've taken uh, Christianity, and we, we, we've made it about such things that have nothing to do with Jesus which is a huge problem for us in the church, but it's a huge problem for folks outside of the church because they look at who they think Christians are and what they think Christianity is, and they reject the gospel or Christianity that has nothing to do with what Christianity really is. But when I think about what we ought to be doing is what Jesus does in John chapter 4, right? He makes it all about himself. There's this John chapter 4 is the story of the woman of the well. We're not going to kind of get into all the details. But you got this woman who's just living this crazy sinful life, right? 
And everyone's outcast her. She's a Samaritan, so ethnically, racially, she's just outcast. She's, she's a woman, and in this time, she's kind of outcast and, and oppressed. And, and she's uh, also just uh, super immoral, right? So she's got all these things against her. So she's looking in at Christianity, particularly if she's got a wrong view of what Christianity is. She's thinking, I don't have a chance. I don't want anything to do with those and Jesus, instead, he's super hungry, and he's like, hey, can you help me? He kind of puts himself in a place of servitude under her. He's like, I need your help. And they have this conversation around the well, and, and she, she shares all about her life, and, and he actually kind of shares all about her life. She's like, how did you know those details of my sinfulness and my relationships and my illicit relationships? But then she says this thing at the end of it. The woman left her water jar, ran into town. And said to the people, come see a man who told me all that I ever did. Could this be the Christ? See, Christianity was all about Jesus for her, right? She goes, oh, man, here's a guy who knew all my sinfulness and still wanted me. She runs back with joy to say, he knew all about me. you got to meet him. It was all about Jesus. The stories of scriptures, the way they lived. The way we live has to be all about Jesus. See, I think there's a lot of folks in this area, too, that have kind of experienced a church that wasn't all about Jesus. Uh, They've been in a church where it's like, uh, you can't come take communion if you've got sin in your life, right? Isn't that the whole point of the story of communion and the story of the whole scriptures? You've got sin in your life. Come take the forgiveness of Jesus, Come be reminded how much he loves you and what he's done for you. Whether that's Baptist or Catholic, you've been told, man, you're not good enough. And the story of the scriptures is, yeah, that's right, you're not good enough, but you're embraced by the grace of Jesus. It's the whole reason the book of the stories of the scriptures was written. It's the whole reason Jesus came to give forgiveness and repentance that we could then walk in newness of life. And when we keep screwing up, we'd say, man, I'm forgiven. That we would keep driving us to say, I want to keep living for him more and more. Why? Because it's all about him, knowing him, living for him, living like him, and sharing him. The whole scriptures, every piece of our lives, every bit of our church ought to be about him. All right, let's go back to see kind of in the beginning. Do you read the very beginning of the story in Adam? And you know, this is what we're going to do through the summer. We're going to take one person at a time. And we're going to hit all different people. Some are really well known and some are not. Like we're going to do Jeroboam. You're like, who the heck is Jeroboam? We're going to do Abraham, right? We're going to do Rahab, we're going to do Sarah, we're going to do Haggai, we're going to do some uh, different men and women from the Old Testament and say, how do these point forward to Jesus? So let's go back and, and do the first guy in the Old Testament, this is Adam, right? We're in Genesis chapter 2, it's the first book of your Bible, Genesis chapter 2, verse 15, and God has made men and women, and, and we don't kind of really know all that. You, you could read uh, chapters 1 and 2 and say this is a literal seven days, and, and this is how a lot of uh, Christians believe it to be written. You could write and say, hey, these are uh, principles that are then, it's not a scientific narrative, but, uh, you know, these are the basic order of things. Or you could say uh, Genesis 1-1, God made the heavens and the earth, and that's, that's everything that's made, and we don't really know all the details. Right? Like There are different orthodox ways. There's a handful of ways to read this, but, but here's what we know. There's, there's Adam and there's Eve. Uh, made by God, his people, to be in relationship with him. And, and this is what he says to them in, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 15 to 17. 
The Lord God took the man and he put him in the Garden of Eden to work it and keep it. He's made this amazing place for Adam to live. Uh, he's got this uh, unshattered purpose. He's like, man, you got this amazing place. Just keep this garden with me. Let's do it together. And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You will surely eat of every tree of the garden, but the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you will surely die. So in the beginning, we have this uh, unhindered relationship with God and men and women. Uh, Eve is about to, uh, we're about to get the narrative of Eve's creation as well. And so we've got this unhindered relationship. It's just amazing, right? There's, there's nothing barring relationship between humanity and God. And God says, uh, in this great relationship, you can trust me, you can love me. And, says, uh, and so don't eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Like you can have it all, just don't eat from this tree. So there's a relationship, and there's a command to be obeyed, and, and certainly we would obey that command at that point, right? Because we're like, man, I can trust him. I, I love him. He's give, giving me all this. This, this, is, this is just a great relationship with great purpose together, and there's great joy here. Well, then we go down to chapter 3. Now the serpent, who was more crafty than other beasts in the field the Lord God had made, and now the woman and the man are together here, by the way. He said to the woman, did God actually say you would not eat of the tree of the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the trees of the garden, but God said you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it. Well, she didn't really say, but maybe we weren't listening too closely, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die, die. It's the very exact kind of opposite of the command that God has given, which is said, you will surely die, die. And, and here the serpent says, nah, you're not going to. He's lying to you. And God actually knows that when you eat, your eyes will be open. You'll be like God, knowing good and evil. Actually, something amazing is going to happen. You probably can't trust this God. He's probably not uh, the one you should be ordering your life around. And so when the woman saw the tree was good for food, it was a delight to the eyes that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. She took its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her then, and he ate. And the eyes of both were open. They knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And then you see God coming in this kind of a torrent of a windstorm in a sense, and God calls out, and they're, they're covered in shame at this point. They're like, man, we, it, it isn't just that we disobeyed you and said we want to live life our own way, but it's that we decided you weren't trustworthy. That we didn't love you first. Because uh, if we did trust you, if we did love you, we would do what you said. And so there's broken relationship. And then God does just what he said he would do. He casts them out of the garden. He says, uh, he, he drew uh, the man and the woman. He, he drove out the man to the east of the garden of Eden. And he placed the cherubim with flaming swords that turned every way to guard the way to the tree of life. He casts them out. As Romans 6.23 will tell us later, the wages of our sin is death. It's separation from God in relationship with life, in life-giving relationship with him. It's alienation. It's brokenness with one another. And that's why we see the whole story goes on at this point. But even in the midst of that, these kind of judgments that God places because he's a righteous God, he gives us a little hint. He's talking to Satan at this point, and he says this. I'm going to put enmity between you and this woman and this man, and between the offspring and her offspring. Her offspring, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. We call this the proto-evangelion. It's the, the first bit of good news to come. 
Uh, do you hear uh, God speaking to Satan says, uh, you know, you and the woman, you're going to be at odds with one another for the rest of humanity, right? And one of her offspring is going to come. And, and this offspring is going to bruise or crush or destroy your head, Satan. Boom, dead, done. Uh, but you at the same time are going to bruise or strike his heel. And this is probably a poison snake, which means that offspring, that one to come through the seed of Eve will die too. So it's through the death of the offspring that Satan and death and everything will be killed. And we say, oh, when we look back, oh, I see what God was doing. See, this is Jesus' story. In redemption history, this is the inciting incident that God made everything to be perfect in relationship with himself, in relationship with each other, in relationship in the world. But what we realize is that our sin and Adam and Eve's sin is broken at all. When we look around, gosh, do we see the brokenness. When we look in our own households, gosh, do we see the brokenness. When we look in our own minds and our own hearts, don't we see the brokenness and sin? And that the story now moves forward in the inciting incident, in the reality of sin, that we then wait for a Savior to come. And then uh, Revelation chapter 22 and chapter 21, what we see is there's going to be a new garden. And there's going to be a gate there, but the gate isn't going to be shut. It's going to be flung wide open for any who have received the forgiveness of Christ. And there's going to be a tree of knowledge of good and evil and a tree of life and a river of life. And it's going to be amazing. It's going to be restored the way it ought to have always been. Before that inciting incident that moved the story forward that broke it all. Oh, we also see in this the, the uh, foreshadowing and a fulfillment in Christ. What well, we see when Jesus shows up on the scene, he, he's in a garden too in Matthew chapter 4. And Satan comes and tempts him. And Jesus is like, no, 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 no. <laughs> and his relationship with the Father is fully that of love and trust and obedience. And in every step he says, no, Satan, it's written this. That this is what's true. And, and Jesus walks in step with God in perfect relationship with God the Father. And everything that Adam did not do, Jesus now does. You say, wow, a foreshadowing of the one to come. In a sense, there's positive and negative types going on here. In, in Romans chapter 5, we're, we're not going to read through all this passage except just a couple verses. And, and in it, uh, uh, Paul says, hey, there was one back here, Adam. And in his sin, he brought sin and death into the world. But there is one now, Jesus, kind of the, the second Adam, the antitype, the, the one who did all that that Adam did not do and the one who could do all that that Adam could not do. And, and in his obedience, Jesus' obedience, where that Adam brought life, or death, this Adam, the second Adam, Jesus brings life. Where he brought condemnation, this one brings justification. He says, you can have my righteousness, my goodness as your own by faith. And Paul says, everything that was broken uh, in Adam is now fixed in Christ. Jesus did all that Adam did not do to give us back all that Adam had lost. Jesus did all that that Adam did not do to give us back all that that Adam had lost. And there's even direct prophecy. We already read it. Genesis 3, verse 15, that one would come who would crush the head of Satan even in his own death, being struck by the serpent himself. I uh, See, this summer, I, I don't want to give us just something else to do. I, I would love to give us someone to know. 
That's why we've written up these guides and why I would commend you just, uh, maybe you just want to say, I'm going to read Genesis, uh, Exodus, Leviticus, right? I'm just going to read these three big bulky books of the Old Testament, these historic books, and I'm going to read it with the lens that I find uh, in this guide. Or, or maybe you want to read along with us, and, and we did Jesus and Adam today, and then we'll do Abraham and, and Sarah and Hagar and others you want to read along week after week with us. But I, I don't want to give us something to do, but here's what I know. Each of us have got to get to know our Savior more and more this summer. And I don't want us to look back and say, man, I wasted this summer. And things are right now today the same they were at the beginning of the summer. And I thought all these vacations would give me peace and purpose and joy. And I thought all the rest would do it. But my soul is still in turmoil and my mind's still all twisted up. I want us to open up the book of the scriptures and just sit with them. Put it right on your summer reading list. And just get to know him a bit more. Uh, that that moment, that ah moment would happen over and over again for us this summer. Uh, that aha moment came when he had explained the scriptures to his disciples, his followers. And then he said at the table along with them as he took the cup and he took this bread and he, he broke it. He took it with them. That's when their eyes were opened and they recognized him. And then... He vanished from their sight, and they said, Oh, didn't our hearts burn within us when he explained the scriptures to us? I would love for us to each meet our Savior this summer. I don't know where you need to meet him. I don't know if you're kind of feeling guilty over some sin in your life, if you've got some hard thing going on in your marriage, if you're not experiencing the, the, the purpose that you long for in life. But I know you're going to find all those things in your Savior, Jesus. I know you're going to find all those things sitting at his feet in the scriptures when you get to know him this summer. So if you're following Jesus this morning, we do this every week. We do that kind of same thing that he did around the table in Emmaus. We take this bread as a reminder that his body was broken in our place. We take this cup as a reminder that his blood was spilled in our place. And then we, we eat it and we drink it together to remember, man, our world is broken. I'm broken. But I've got a mighty and gracious and loving Savior in Jesus who's forgiven me by faith. And uh, the world won't stay broken forever. We want to be as people now bringing about restoration. But what we know is this Jesus will return one day. And it'll be quite a feast then. When we're in the new garden with new hope, with new restoration. Enjoying our Savior together. So if you're trusting in him this morning, if you place your faith in Christ, would you take and eat and drink together with us and, and remember, oh, what a Savior we have. And what, oh, what a story we have that points us to him. And oh... Life, purpose, hope, joy, peace we can find in Him even today. Let's take and eat together.